Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, titled Optimizing the Use of Immunotherapy in the First-Line Maintenance Setting for Metastatic Urothelial Carcinoma, is provided by Agile. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Survival for metastatic urothelial cancers increase with the approval of immune therapy, antibody drug conjugates, and targeted agents. In the maintenance setting, Evalimab has become the global standard of care. Do you know how to evaluate and effectively implement immune therapy in the maintenance setting in your practice? This is a CME on ReachMD, and I'm Professor Tom Poles. I'm here today with my great friend Petros Grivas. Petros, do you want like to introduce yourself? Hello, Tom. Great to be with you and discuss this very important data. I wonder it was a great pleasure to discuss together. Thank you. Let's get started and to set the stage. On this chapterized course, there's going to be various chapters in this course. I'm going to start by discussing data on the use of immune therapy in first-line maintenance for metastatic urothelial cancer and the management of adverse events, which I'm going to ask Petros about. To summarize the trial, the Javelin 100 trial is a randomized phase three study. It includes patients with advanced urothelial cancer. They've completed four to six cycles of chemotherapy. They've not had progression of disease in their cancer during that period of time on CT imaging. And they're starting maintenance of Alimab two-weekly or best supportive care until progression of disease. Overall survival is the primary endpoint of the trial. There were other endpoints, such as progression-free survival and outcomes in pdl one positive patients. The initial results of the trial and the updated results of the trial have been consistent with one another. They've shown a 25% reduction in the risk of death. They've also shown a significant progression-free survival advantage. And indeed, this advantage has been irrespective of the type of chemotherapy, gemcis or gemcarbo, the sites of disease, visceral metastasis, nodal metastasis, the pdl one biomarker, the number of cycles of chemotherapy. These have all shown benefit for the evalimab arm. I think it's fair to say the reason why this is the case is because we showed that giving second-line immune therapy, such as pembrolizumab, many patients not, never got there. And in the frontline setting, immune therapy wasn't as good as chemotherapy for getting initial control. And indeed, the combination of chemotherapy and immune therapy were antagonistic together. And so therefore, giving maintenance of alimab, sequencing immune therapy directly after chemotherapy gets control of disease and maintains that control, which is important. Within the trial, we showed one or two important other issues. We showed the vast majority of patients who progressed, particularly on the best supportive care arm, got immune therapy as the next therapy. Indeed, over 70% of patients who progressed got subsequent therapy. And we also showed the drug was broadly safe, with only 10% of patients discontinuing therapy or requiring steroids. Petros, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the long-term safety data, what you've shown? And then what I might do is talk about quality of life and twist analysis. Thank you, Tom. What a great summary. And I think the data that about toxicity are relevant to our patients. Overall, I would say as a general statement, the data with Avelumab as switch maintenance immunotherapy in patients with disease control on chemotherapy is in line with the data we see with checkpoint inhibitors as single agents in advanced solid tumors. We do not see any major safety signals or concerns. Uh, overall, if I give a snapshot, if we look at from the beginning of the trial, the proportion of patients with any grade 
treatment-related adverse event that happened during the trial with Avelumab was about three-quarters of the patients. But if we focus specifically on grade three or higher treatment-related adverse events, only about 20% of patients, one out of five, had a grade three or higher treatment-related adverse event. Now, if we look at serious treatment-related adverse events with Avelumab at any point of time, it's about 10%, so one out of 10 patients. And if we focus our attention to the treatment-related adverse events leading to discontinuation of treatment, it's about 11%. So again, about one out of nine patients. So overall, the treatment was well-tolerated. It's much easier compared to the conventional cytotoxic chemotherapy. And I think overall, if we look at the long-term safety follow-up, so the onset of immune-related adverse events that may happen after a year of treatment, we see that over time, it's become less frequent, less common to have a treatment-related adverse event. The patients who had already at least one year of treatment and continued, only about half of them, 50% had a treatment-related adverse event of any grade, and only about 12% had a treatment-related adverse event grade three or higher that started after a year of treatment. So I think it's important to keep an eye on those patients over time. And of course, keep an eye for immune-related adverse events. It can happen anytime, but the chance of that is becoming less over time. And again, no new safety concerns. I want to hear you know, your thoughts about the Q2East analysis we presented at, at ASCO meeting, but I want to briefly mention that our work that was published in European Urology, and we looked at the quality of light patient report outcomes, and we saw that uh, the overall survival and PFS benefit with available maintenance was apparent, but there was no significant detriment in the quality of life of those patients, and this is important because patient report outcomes matter. And I think, Tom, you showed some very important relevant data from the Q-twist analysis at ASCO a few weeks ago. Q-twist is a different way of looking at adverse events. And it looks at the impact of adverse events over time. Essentially, we feel that patients who are progression-free, who are not experiencing grade three or grade four adverse events of any description, have the maximum quality of life. And indeed, when you delay progression-free survival, sadly, drugs with side effects will eat into that progression-free survival time. And the way they'll do that is because patients will be living with more toxicity. And therefore, twist analysis calculates that key curve where patients are not progressing, but at the same time, don't have grade three or four adverse events. And essentially, it generates an area under the curve. And what we can see with this twist analysis is we can see for Evalumab, that is much longer than with best supportive care because the drug is relatively well tolerated. And so the time with toxicity is only a small amount larger, but also because the progression-free survival is 50% longer, that offsets that increased time with toxicity. Q-twist, the Q on the front, estimates the quality of that time. And that can go from zero to one, zero where the toxicity has no effect and one where it has a maximum effect and totally takes away any quality of life. And you can see this Q-twist analysis, depending on which model you put in place, reinforces that fact that we can see improved twist, Q-twist analysis, longer progression-free, adverse event-free quality time with Evalimab versus best supported care. Petros, what can you tell us about clinical guidelines and regulatory approval for immune therapy and first-line maintenance metastatic disease, as well as the management of adverse events? Perhaps you could start with some of the guidelines, NTC and ESMO guidelines. 
Thank you, Tom. I think, you know, it's so difficult to change the paradigm and management of this disease. And, you know, both you and me have been involved in multiple trials over the years, trying to move the needle forward. And I think we're all very excited to see that we can now generate level one evidence that translates to clinical practice change and, of course, reform of the guidelines, NCCN, ESMO, and others. So after your great presentation at ASCO 2020 and the subsequent New Journal of Paper, Medicine paper that came afterwards, we see that, you know, this practice has changed globally. On June 30 of 2020, the FDA decided to give regular approval to Avelumab as maintenance therapy for patients who have either response or stable disease to induction platinum-based chemotherapy based on the level one evidence that was generated on the Javelin Bladder 100 trial. And subsequently, other regulatory authorities like in, and have did the same thing. The European Medicine Agency, EMA in Europe, and of course, in other countries have approved Avelumab for the same indication as maintenance therapy for patients with no progression of plant-based chemotherapy in the frontline setting of advanced urothelial cancer. And we, we see that now across the board with broad utilization of Avelumab maintenance in different countries. I think the, the important point is that it's hard to generate level one evidence. And I think a phase three trial with a clear overall survival and PFS signal, I think, justifies this uh, change in the guidelines. And we see uniformity, I would argue, across different guidelines and seeing NCCN, ESMO, and others. The other point that you raised is about management of adverse events. Again, we're always trying to maximize that. And in different cancer centers, we may have different multidisciplinary teams looking at the management of immune-related adverse events. As we discussed before, Avelumab overall seems to be well tolerated in the vast majority of patients with no significant new safety signals. However, I think all of us should be on the look right, for treatment-related adverse events. We have multidisciplinary approach. We have a team here at our institution looking at, for example, immune-related adverse events. We have a tumor board. We have a listserv, and we try to involve other disciplines that may be relevant. For example, if a patient develops colitis, to develop, a, 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 of course, a relationship with a gastroenterologist to optimize the management of this patient in a timely manner. The other point I would say is that you know, the multidisciplinary approach can you know, definitely re- lead to early optimal management of those patients. The other thing that happens is the infusion reactions. There has been a discussion about that. If we look at the overall incidence from the beginning of the study, about 20% of patients or so, about one out of five, had any great infusion reaction. Usually this is mild, grade one, grade two, and usually managed with antihistamines and acetaminophen. And I would say only about 3% of patients who had been treated for at least a year developed a new onset infusion reaction. So something to keep in mind mind, be alerted to it, but it is usually, you know, mild and easily manageable. And as I mentioned before, obviously optimal education of patients and the providers, the multidisciplinary approach can help. And of course, always I tell patients to not under-report, right? Just to make sure they tell us if any changes happen in their treatment course. Petros, what's happened to the frontline approval of atezolizumab and pembrolizumab? Because there have been various changes by the FDA. Great question, Tom. So back in 2017, when we were still in the early days of immune checkpoint inhibition development in advanced urothelial cancer, initially we saw an approval by the FDA for in the frontline settings in chemotherapy-naive patients for cisplatin-ineligible, cisplatin-unfit patients in the frontline setting based on accelerated approval 
that came because of some promising response rate between 20 and 29% and durable responses and a favorable toxicity profile with checkpoint inhibition uh, based on phase two non-randomized trials. For example, the Invigor 210 and cohort one in the first line setting and the uh, Kino 052 with Atizu and Pembro respectively. The FDA has said accelerated approval is given, but we need to see the phase three randomized clinical trial data. And that subsequently came after. During the phase three trials, the FDA has changed the indication of the accelerated approval and the label and restricted that in cisplatin eligible patients, not all comers, but specifically for pedilone high expression. And then oh, subsequently over time, we saw the results from those phase three trials and you alluded to it. Those phase three trials like in Vigo 130, Kino 361, showed that checkpoint inhibition by itself is not superior to chemotherapy. And actually in the beginning, the first few months, you may lose more patients with immunotherapy. So I think in patients who can tolerate chemotherapy, cisplatin ideal or carboplatin at least, with those patients start with platin-based chemotherapy and then maintenance available for those with no progression. But we actually, based on those data in the United States, ezolizumab was withdrawn and has no indication currently in advanced urothelial cancer that also had to do with a phase three trial in platinum refractory disease in vigor 211 that did not show overall survival benefit of Tezo versus chemotherapy. So Tezo was completely withdrawn. And pembrolizumab in the frontline setting, the indication is only for platinum ineligible patients, meaning patients who cannot tolerate cisplatin and carboplatin. It's about 10% of patients in my practice cannot get any platinum. And this is for pembro first line. But in platinum refractory disease, pembrolizumab maintains its level one evidence for platinum refractory disease for patients who, who have progressed on platinum based on the uh, Kino 045 trial that showed overall survival benefit of pembro versus taxane of influin, but this is platinum refractory. So a lot of evolution over time and just show us that, you know, sometimes with phase three trials, randomized trials, we may get more clarity in the randomized setting and context. So Petros, in summary, what we have is we have a standard of care, which is now established from a global perspective, which is maintenance of Valimab. This is sequenced directly after four to six cycles of chemotherapy for those patients whose cancer is not progressing. It's associated with a survival advantage. Updated data on quality of life and twists and long-term toxicity suggests that it's a well-tolerated regime. It's working across broad subgroups of patients. Other approaches as it currently stands haven't superseded that. We're looking forward to data with antibody drug conjugates and other combinations in the future. But as it currently stands, we have what we think is a, a relatively well-tolerated and efficacious regime for our patients. In chapter two, we'll be discussing improving the applications and accelerating the adoption of immune therapy in the first-line maintenance setting for metastatic urethelial cancer. So stay tuned. For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Professor Tom Poles, and I'm here today with my great friend, Petros Grivas. We're discussing the first-line maintenance setting for metastatic urethelial cancer. Welcome back. We were just talking about improving awareness of immune therapy in first-line maintenance of Valimab in metastatic urethelial cancer. We're now turning to accelerating the adoption of immune therapy in this setting. Petros, how do we apply the current data to the first-line maintenance setting? 
Tom, I, I think you're absolutely right that we have a level one evidence generated by the Javel Bladder 100 trial with metanasavelumab. And I think the implementation in clinical practice is a very important step. You know, as we say, you know, if there's no access to therapy, we cannot improve outcomes. So I think the first comment I have is access. And I think based on our prior discussion in chapter one, based on regulatory approvals across different countries and subsequent, of course, reimbursement coverage, I think there is an expanding access to Avelumab as maintenance therapy after disease control and chemotherapy in the frontline setting. So I think it's a very important point globally if we think about, you know, how to provide more access, you know, in life-prolonging medications and in that way to eliminate disparities, you know, across different countries. And I know ASCO is working a lot, you know, to, to working with different countries, different governments to try to provide resources, again, accessing life-prolonging medications. And I think in that context, Avelumab maintenance is a life-prolonging medication. Another comment is about how to discuss with a patient, right? And I can share with you, Tom, my practice when I see a patient with metastatic or locally advanced unresectable urothelial cancer. We discuss, of course, the estimated prognosis, the incurable disease nature, and, and goals of treatment. And I discuss with them that patients who are fit enough to get chemotherapy, which is a vast majority, probably 90% in my practice, we start with induction-based chemotherapy, and I discuss upfront that that if we have disease control, meaning response to stable disease, the intent and the goal is to transition them at some point to maintenance available to switch to maintenance available therapy. And I tend to do three cycles of chemotherapy and then do restaging scans. And based on the benefit and risk, right, if the patient has a great response to treatment, tolerates treatment well, I may push up to six cycles. If the patient is struggling with toxicity side effects despite those adjustments and have stable disease, I may stop at four cycles of chemo. So we discuss those individual customized scenarios and the timing when we may switch to switch maintenance available after disease control. And we always do cut imaging staging at the end of the chemo. And I think that discussion up front helps the patient plan ahead. I think many patients, you know, want to know ahead of time what the plan of treatment may be. And I think this can help with the implementation of this strategy. At the same time, we may discuss the next generation sequencing, you know, to profile the tumor for later therapies. But I think in I think in, in majority of our practice here, this upfront discussion and of course, the dialogue with the patient that our goal is to control the disease and then maintain the benefit. I think it resonates with them. And I think the vast majority of patients, they follow along and we have a significant, I would say, proportion of patients follow this paradigm of treatment. And as, as I discussed with community oncology colleagues in different practices, they follow the same approach with an upfront discussion of patients and think about the potential options, especially when we have disease control and discuss available maintenance upfront. Petros, I guess overall survival hasn't been achieved by other regimes in the frontline setting. Overall survival is very important. We've recently also seen some real-world data from two European groups, the French and Italian group, large numbers of patients looking at expanded access programs or real-world data collected with a large number of patients that have pursued uh, this approach. And they've shown very similar results with progression-free survival in the region of 12 months, oh, sorry, in the region of six months, and overall survival consistent with the randomized phase three with the tail on that curve, which is really reassuring that we've managed to reproduce those results. One of the questions which I often get asked is how do we decide on cisplatin eligibility and how important is it? My feeling on that at the moment, and some people disagree with me, is that actually there are more similarities and differences between gem cis and gem carbo. 
And the, in the real world, and we showed from these real world data, actually, in the French series, the majority of patients got gem carbo, the vast majority. And I don't think that's a big issue. There's also been question around the PDL1 biomarker. And the reality is that that PDL1 biomarker has more uncertainty, more inconsistency than consistency. There are many different PDL1 biomarkers and many different methods of measuring PDL1 status. And in the end, all of them have had their flaws. And so the maintenance of Alimab program is for unselected patients. We hope in the future we can develop better biomarkers. And then the last issue is, you know, of course, what do we do about those patients who are not eligible? What do we do about those patients who progress on chemotherapy? And that's a challenging group because it doesn't look like salvaging those patients with immune therapy, such as second line pembrolizumab, works that well. And I would certainly encourage you to test their FGFR status, to look for erdofitinib. As you know, the recent Thor trial showed a survival benefit for erdofitinib versus chemotherapy. But also, of course, in vedotin is a really exciting antibody drug conjugate. So to summarize what we've said so far, Petros highlighted um, some of these real world issues about how we should be scanning patients, how many cycles we should give. I've talked about some of the practical issues about differences between GEMSYS and GEMCARBO, the importance of the PDO on biomarker. And I've also talked about how to look after that very difficult group of patients whose cancers progress on chemotherapy. In the third chapter, we're going to be discussing how we incorporate into immune, immune therapy into the first-line maintenance setting for metastatic urethelial cancer. So, so stay tuned for us. Welcome back, everybody. We spoke about accelerating the adoption of immune therapy into the first-line maintenance setting. In the first chapter, we went over the data associated with maintenance of Valimab. In the previous chapter, we talked about some of the practicalities of selecting patients for therapy, how to give the chemotherapy, and which patients are appropriate for maintenance of Valimab. And here today, we're going to talk about how we actually give the Evalimab in this setting. So let's start with the first question. Petros, when do you give Evalimab? How, how long after completing the chemotherapy do you give the Evalimab? And what do you tell your patients before you start the Evalimab? Tom, these are great practical questions. So let me start by just making the point I made before that I have this discussion up front so the patient is aware. We publish the data, as you mentioned, that we look at the treatment-free interval between the end of chemotherapy and initiation of Avelumab in the Javelin Blender 100 trial. The treatment-free interval was between 4 and 10 weeks. And in the subset exploratory analysis, we saw that the benefit with Avelumab in terms of overall and progression-free survival was regardless of you know, the specific sub-interval, 4 to 6, 6, 8, 8, 10 weeks. As long as you stay within that time interval, there is significant benefit. Now, in my practice, I tend to start sooner than later, Tom. I'm worried about progression of this disease. We know that the median PFS without treatment is about two months. And even with complete response, you know, median PFS is maybe, you know, four months or so. So I tend to start about a month or so if the patient agrees and has no any other conflict of schedule. We tend to start about four to five weeks after finishing chemotherapy. When do you do your end of treatment chemotherapy plan? Is that done after the final cycle or is it done a couple of weeks after the final cycle? Because sometimes it can take time to book slot on the chemotherapy ward for subsequent immune therapy. And do you put that, do you book that slot on the chemotherapy unit immediately? Or do you do you wait until you get the result of the CT scan? Because of the challenge with infusion share and, and capacity, I try to be proactive and I tentatively block this infusion time. 
approximately four to five weeks after the last chemotherapy dose. I get the CAT scans in between, of course, and to make sure there's no progression of chemotherapy. And I try to get product authorization from the insurance company, make sure that we get everything ready to go. And then after the CAT scan result, then we can confirm the plan. In rare scenarios, when there's progression, then we can abort that plan and switch gears to something else, antibody drug conjugate, as you mentioned, or dafitinib or Pembrol, depending on the case. But I try to be as proactive as possible and plan ahead of the time when the patient finishes the last dose of chemotherapy. The other thing that you asked, which is very important, is the frequency of Avelumab and the duration of treatment. I would say that the trial design was to give Avelumab every two weeks, I completely acknowledge that this is a significant commitment from the patient to come every two weeks for a long amount of time. Some people may live far away from the cancer center, right? So you ask them to come every two weeks, it's a significant therapy burden. However, we do not have good data with longer intervals. So we try as much as possible to stick with that every two week interval as much as possible. Obviously, if there is any unresolved conflict on schedule, we can potentially adjust. But I think that the rule is and the standard is to maintain this every two weeks schedule. In terms of duration of therapy, that's a big question in the field of immunotherapy, advanced solid tumors in general. My approach has been to, and I discuss it with the patient upfront, to continue Avelumab until progression of the cancer or unacceptable toxicity. As I mentioned before, only about one out of 10 patients need to stop because of unacceptable toxicity, grade three or higher treatment-related adverse event. The majority of patients who end up stopping treatment is because of progression. The patient asked me, will I get this treatment forever? And it's a good discussion to a degree, right? Because we discuss with the patient, we want you to have no progression, right? So hopefully we'll have, you know, this discussion again and again. But we, when we reach, you know, a longer term time point, maybe two years, we have a dialogue and we say, we do not have data about stopping. The trial was designed to continue. However, we have this dialogue with the patient and I asked for their opinion too and what they feel about stopping or continuing you know, after two years, keeping the trial designed to account. And most patients are worried about progression. So most of them decide to continue until progression or unacceptable toxicity. Petros, how often do you see the patients yourself? Is it every two weeks or every month? And how frequently are you scanning these patients while they're on immune therapy? Great question, Tom. I tend to see them, you know, in the beginning of the visit, you know, review the scans from prior chemotherapy, make sure there's no progression there and see them for cycle one day one of Avelumab. And then we work with advanced practice providers, a PA or nurse practitioner, and they see this patient subsequent cycles, but I see them every time there is a CAT scan, imaging evaluation. In the beginning, I do imaging every two months, so every four doses. And if the patient is doing well and there is no progression, after probably four to six months, I switch to every three month interval of scans. So it depends on the case. If I have something that's concerning, I may keep it every two months. If everything looks good and there's no concern, I may increase that interval to every three months down the road. And as we go forward in outlier situations where a patient is more than a year out, we could potentially, you know, extend it to every four months. However, I think usually, you know, every two to three months is a typical time frame of, for interval imaging. So a couple of takeaways from today is that there is this seamless process, ideally a seamless process between cessation of chemotherapy and switching to maintenance of Valimab. And while the regime is given every two weeks, patients don't necessarily need to have that intensity of regular blood tests every two weeks. And things like imaging can be done every 12 weeks. And there needs to be a discussion with patients probably at the outset about how long they want to continue on a Valimab for. 
It's all we've had time for today. I wanted to thank the audience for listening. And of course, Petros, thank you for joining me and sharing your really valuable insights. I really enjoyed today. Goodbye and thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Agile. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash agile. Thank you for listening.